everybody, and welcome to our next episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. I am back. They tried to get rid of me last time when they did Marshall uh, by bringing on Justin, but I just want to say I'm here and I'm here for good. Uh, as great as that episode was, it really was a fantastic episode. So if you didn't get a chance to check out Marlon, uh, would recommend. Definitely check it out. Uh, we had a really great conversation. Uh, this week we have an, also an excellent conversation. Uh, this week our guest is Mr. Cornell Belcher. Uh, he is a world-renowned pollster. Uh, you know, has been in the game for so long. He will explain to us what polling is, which is something I have no clue about. Uh, he also wrote a book called A Black Man in the White House, Barack Obama and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis. Yeah, and uh, he's known specifically for, and the reason he wrote this book about the Obama presidency is uh, because he was Obama's pollster. He was the one who helped him catapult uh, his launch to the presidency in 2008 and 2012. So this guy, when you say he knows his numbers, he knows his numbers. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, but before we dive into that, let's recap uh, what's going on in the world this week. I think let's start with our tweet of the week. It's a very exciting time to be here at Georgetown, uh, and uh, we I know last time we talked about some basketball news. We just have to follow up on that story. Uh, so on April fifth, uh, which I believe was that uh, yesterday, Wednesday. Uh, only yesterday. It was only yesterday. Can you believe that? Uh, the Georgetown Hoyas account tweeted, and this made us all very excited. Welcome home, coach, with the picture of none other than Patrick Ewing, the new head coach of the Hoyas basketball team. I love it. What do you guys think? I, I think it's a fantastic hire, a great decision, and as someone who's going to bring some energy back to this program. If you guys have thoughts, you know, tweet at us at Fly on the Wall Pod. Find us on Instagram. Uh, you know, personally, I'm also a pretty big fan. Uh, I've always, uh, you know, been of the opinion that no one would really understand Georgetown basketball better than Patrick Ewing. Uh, you know, and I think that he's going to be the guy who's going to bring that passion, that resilience to this team. Uh, and, you know, that bring that work ethic back to this team uh, that I think, you know, might have been lost in the last couple of years at JT3. Um, and I think that he's going to be the guy to make sure that um, we're going to get back on track with this team. I don't think it's going to be immediate. Uh, I think it might take a couple of years. I think a lot of it's going to depend on, you know, who he hires. But um, I think it's a really great move uh, by Georgetown. Great. And let's uh, let's dive a little bit into the news the past week just to Oof. give a brief. Uh, yeah, I know. Just to give a brief overview because we're following up on a couple of stories that we've, we've uh, talked about in the past. Uh, so let's start with uh, the Senate and the Supreme Court saga. So we heard from uh, Sarah Fagan and Bob Barnes and uh, Ron Klain a couple weeks ago when we talked about uh, you know what it means to be nominated to the Supreme Court about that whole process. It happened, folks. We, we lost the filibuster. Christian, you want to tell us about uh, what went down today in the Senate? So uh, for those of you that don't know or didn't listen to our uh, you know podcast from week two. Which you really three, should, week yeah. three. Uh, if you guys want a really great understanding of this, you should check out that week. Um, because we talk to pretty much the people who decide these things. Um, so us lowly college students, uh, I'll run you through a quick recap. You basically need a motion to go into voting, essentially. Um, and the voting procedure itself only needs a majority. So Supreme Court nominees only need uh, 50 votes to pass, but not really, because uh, the vote to go into that voting um, requires 60 votes. That first vote to get to 60 um, has gone out the window, basically. Um, Harry Reid killed it in 2013 for uh, lower court nominees and then cabinet nominees. Um, and basically, uh, Senator McConnell, you know, the majority leader, has made the argument that he set the precedent that it would be okay to kill it for Supreme Court nominees. Um, and agree or disagree with that, uh, but there is an argument there. 
Yeah, what makes me sad is that gone are the days where you could have uh, senators like Ted Cruz stand up for 30 plus hours and hold the floor and just keep debate going endlessly. Because what a vote on uh, ending a filibuster through uh, cloture does is that it cuts off debate, right? So the Senate rules typically allow for unlimited debate, unlike the House. That's what makes the the body so slow moving and, and so deliberative. Uh, but now it's gone. Now Democrats, they can't hold the floor. They can't uh, they can't kill this motion to uh, nominate Judge Gorsuch. Uh, all it, all it needs is a simple majority to to end voting or to end de- debate rather than go into uh, voting procedure. Yeah. So the larger problem with this um, is essentially the fact that uh, the Senate is always known as the more uh, quote unquote sane uh, body of uh, Congress. You know, take that as you will. <laughs> um, but basically, the different the fundamental difference between the Senate and the House is the House votes you know on a pure majority. So if you are in the minority party, your vote does not matter for all intents and purposes. You could basically sit there for two years, four years, eight years and have a vote cast that is, does nothing. However, in the Senate, uh, minority party votes do matter uh, because you do need to get that bipartisanship. Um, and so the Senate has always been, you know, the more sane, more bipartisan House of Congress. Um, and, you know, this vote and, you know, Harry Reid's vote in 2013 have really fundamentally altered the character of the Senate. Um, And I think that's, you know, the bigger picture to take away from this. Yeah, a lot of people would argue that the Supreme Court is supposed to be, those decisions are supposed to be made through a bipartisan lens, right? You don't want someone sitting on the highest court of the land who's so uh, polar in their politics that, you know, at least the majority, at least, or a supermajority rather, at least not 60 senators can get uh, behind this candidate. So uh, I guess we'll see how that goes, especially moving forward the next 20, 30 years. There, this might be the, the age of a, a totally polarized court, and it'll be very interesting to see uh, you know, how that goes from there. Another point that we want to bring up, since we've been talking a lot about healthcare uh, the last couple episodes, is uh, Congress is gone. The House of Representatives has gone on a two-week uh, Easter break, and we still have no healthcare reform. And in fact, Speaker Ryan actually met with uh, Ryan's Priebus, the chief of staff of the White House today. Uh, and the chief of staff basically said, your speakership is, is in danger, right? You might lose this if you're not able to move legislation. We know that the speaker is in a very tough place. He's trapped between the moderates in the Republican uh, conference as well as the uh, far-right House uh, Freedom Caucus. And, uh, you know, without pulling votes from either of those sides, it's very hard for him to, to move uh, with the size of his majority in the House. So I think it'll be very interesting you know, moving forward with that situation. For the record, I have said, and a lot of people have said and continue to say, there's no reason that you should take the Speaker of the House job. There's literally <laughs> zero reason, okay? It has not ended well for the last, like, five Speakers of the House. So true. You should not take that job, guys. Don't do it, okay? You're taking over an institution that has a single-digit approval rating. The chances are you're going to get thrown out. So, like, so just please, you know, uh, Georgetown students, you know, sitting here who want to run for Congress, do it. And if you're asked to take the Speakership, do not think about this podcast. <laughs> think about the advice that I told you. Don't take the Speakership because it's a really bad move. Also looking at you, Kevin McCarthy, <laughs> Pete Sessions, anyone else who's next on the chopping block. It, 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 just just stay away. Just don't. S- stay away. You're taking over an institution, again, that has a single-digit approval rating. You know, the, the you, it's hard to get America to agree on something, uh, and like 90%, over 90% agree that Congress sucks at their job. So what I heard Christian just doing right there 
is citing a poll, which, segue, is a great way to get into our conversation with Mr. Cornell Belcher. Like we said, Cornell Belcher is a polling extraordinaire. Uh, the dude knows polling, public opinion polling, internal strategic polling to a T, and we can't wait to hear him uh, recap what happened in 2016 because, you know, yeah, we're, we're still pretty shook. Not going to lie. Hashtag shook. Hashtag shook. Um, but also, you know, what what does the future look like for pollsters? What do you, what do they actually do? You know, what does their job look like? We uh, figuring out the maths. We don't know. Something we would love to know. We don't we don't math here at Fly on the Wall. We really don't. Uh, <laughs> so that's why we have here. Uh, that's why we have him here. And uh, what do you say? Let's uh, let's go bring him in. Uh, we still have a couple of questions for you. So. I, look, I look forward to it. Let's, let's, let's play hardball. <laughs> I don't know if you would call it hardball. <laughs> but I appreciate it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so we're here with you, and we're really excited to be here with you. I'm um, excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Georgetown. <laughs> so our first question for you, um, uh, and I feel like a lot of Georgetown students are going to be very confused. Um, because a lot of Georgetown students are here because we don't like math. Um, <laughs> That's why we're government majors. Uh, you know, we, we came to this campus to get away from the math, and um, yet you have found a way to get politics and math, you know, together uh, as a pollster. So talk to us a little bit about your background. You know, why why did you decide that polling uh, was really where you wanted to go? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really grow up thinking, oh, I want to be a pollster because pollsters are cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> although pollsters are cool. Okay? As of we've course. learned. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, it was really I wanted to be a part of... Uh, it, the social sciences were important to me, and I've always been um, sort of a nerd about wanting to get into and understand and being fascinated with political behavior, you know, why do people behave politically the way they behave. And, you know, one of my, one of the, the big uh, people in my, in, in helped form my, my, my thinking and, and was Du Bois, W.E. Du Bois, and he is you know, sort of a preeminent, you know, American social scientist. And, you know, Du Bois, wanted to use the social sciences as a way to bring sort of different an understanding and to bring about change and particularly uh, bring about change in, in, in race matters and right so for me you know being able to use science as a way to both um, bring about change but also for me I, I wanted to get involved with the politics because I because like most young people coming to Washington I came to Washington after I graduated from JMU, uh, I actually didn't even apply to Georgetown. I didn't think you would let me in. Really? <laughs> uh, you know, you come to Washington because you want to change. You want to change the world, right? And whether you come as a Republican or a Democrat, you know, you got all these young kids coming to Washington, coming to the Hill because they want to be a part of the process and, and fighting for for change how they see it. And I never knocked that, and I love that about it. So I was one of those young kids as well. Uh, but for me, I wanted to get involved with with campaigns. And I want to get uh, involved in really, you know, giving voice to, and at that time I was young, <laughs> giving voice to younger people like myself and particularly younger people and bringing more diverse perspectives to politics and really giving uh, younger, particularly younger people of color, a, a, a bigger voice in, in politics and what was happening in the country. So somehow I, I, I meshed that, uh, my social science need with with my social science with politics and polling was perfect um 
for me. You know, I, I do like polling because, and this is this is just my riff, <laughs> my uh, thing about polling. I think pollsters are actually really important. And I think why pollsters are really important is because I think we're actually really important and key to democracy. Because we are gatherers of attitudes and opinions of the people, right? And I think it's important for our elected officials and our leaders to actually have an understanding of what the people want. And I think we as pollsters, we bring some of that to the table edit you know and and so for me i really think of it and i'm in the minority on this (laughs) but i really do think of polling as as an important uh tool and vehicle for our for our democracy because i'm actually trying to give uh you know the voice and opinions of of americans uh to our elected leaders so that they can act accordingly now how they crazy they act you know, regardless of what the people think, that's on them. But I, we, we certainly try to tell them and let them know what the people want uh, and what direction they want. Great. And let's drill down a little bit more because a lot of people know, okay, so the end product of a pollster's work, right, is the polls. You know, you see the numbers and you see the analysis. But what sort of goes into that day-to-day uh, work of a pollster? Like when you show up at the office, you know, just on a typical day of work. It's a lot of rock and roll and sex <laughs> and drugs. <laughs> really living uh, the lifestyle. Yeah, it's, you know, pollsters are sort of rock star of politics. <laughs> uh, the truth of the matter is you, most of the people don't understand what political polling. Uh, most people have an understanding of what they see, sort of public opinion polling, mm-hmm. where, you know, in the newspapers, and it will give you, you know, 38% of Americans think the country's heading in the right, wrong direction, or whatever you, what have you. And they'll give you the sort of the, the you know, the horse race, you know, Hillary's at 48% or whatever. Uh, for polling around campaigns, it's a lot more detail than that. It, in, in most of the polling that we do around campaigns, you all never see because they're strategic documents, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Polling and, and politics around campaign is around campaigns is about solving for a problem, right? You you have a you have a a, a, a black candidate who's young, not a lot of experience, and a Muslim name. How, that's a problem, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so you use polling really to solve for problems. You we use polling to understand how we move the electorate from where they are to where we want to be. How do we really position a candidate, who, which is a brand in many ways, how do we position a brand to win majority market share? That is really the nitty-gritty of polling that, that most of you all never see in the public, right? You know, what are the arguments uh, that we have to make for this candidate? And what are the arguments that this candidate can, can authentically make without being fake? I mean, those are the sort of the nitty-gritty parts of polling. You know, what it is, you know, what elements of this candidate's bi- you know, biography resonates with, you know, senior senior moms. You know, uh, you know, if if how do you cobble together a winning coalition? And you know, who who are our targets? I mean, that's really the job uh, that we get into in, in political polling and campaign. I always tell, you know, clients. Uh, polling is a small investment to show you how to make your major investment because the major investment of a candidate is really that candidate's time and the resources and, and money. And polling uh, gives you a snapshot of how to make the best investment. Who are, in fact, the voters who are movable? 
uh, what are the selling points for you with those voters who are movable? Who are those voters who are not at all movable towards you? So you shouldn't waste any of your time and resources to them at all. And, and importantly, sometimes as a pollster, you have to say, there is no pathway for you, right? And as a pollster, sometimes you have to tell someone that your pathway is really difficult. Uh, and then that person has to make a decision whether or not they want to invest their time and resources in, in doing this, right? And But also it sometimes, you know, I, I've had candidates that we that we started working for who's you know been 30 points back uh, and I know while we're fascinated and fixated by the horse race number right in 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 the public really the horse race number for for me when you is the least important number in in the poll because that's the number that I'm gonna to work to change <laughs> that's the number that I know is gonna be fluid right yeah. so I've had candidates start back at 30 points behind the pack, but I also see a pathway, right? I also see that you are the most valid, you're the most authentic uh, candidate who can speak to the aspirations and concerns of a majority of the electorate. And what does that look like? So I think there is a pathway here, regardless of where you start off. And that, and that's also, again, about problem solving uh, that I think is important. You see, you keep using this word authentic, right? And it's a word we throw out a lot in politics. But I'm wondering about how you, with your statistical and quantitative background, you know, how do you go about setting up metrics for how you qualify as you authentic? Don't. You it's, don't. It's just a, it's a good right. feeling. Po- you know, polling like politics is both art and a science, right? You, most kids who who've taken a, a stat class and certainly they've taken a a a a statistical class and, 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 or I think, and I was talking to a young lady out here who's, who's actually taking a polling class, which I thought, oh my God, what a yawner that is. Uh, who's the, you know, if you graduate, you, you get out of that class, you know what, you know pretty much from a methodological standpoint what it, what you need to do to poll. But that doesn't make you a good pollster at all, mm-hmm. right? You've got to have, it's the art of it, right? The, for example, uh, and I'm not going to, you know, in, in 2012, uh, Mitt Romney's folks really thought they were going to win the election. Like, they really thought they had it bad. Sure. We knew <laughs> that they did not have it bad. Uh, they had a very different view of the world. And when I say the world, I mean the, the electorate that was than, than we did, right? They had a much different view of, of what younger people were going to do. <laughs> Uh, and many of them would say to me, Cornell, you all, what y'all did in 2008 was was re- remarkable and fantastic, but there's no way you can replicate that in 2012. Well, we did. <laughs> uh, right. So they had a very different view of the world than, than, than what we had. And that's not about necessarily the science. That's about the art of it. But the art sort of also leads you to the science, to the science of it. When you, are, Were young people as energized in 2012 as they were in 2008? No. So if you're looking at it just a few pure enthusiasm metric, you're going to miss the point. Mm-hmm. But were they were they as determined? Were, were the young people who supported Barack Obama just as determined to see him succeed in 2012 as 2008? Yeah, but they were less enthusiastic about it. So it, good polling, like politics itself, is both an art and a science. Getting the science, you have to get the science right, but 
just getting the science right doesn't make you a good poster. You also have to get the art right. Speaking of science. Has anyone ever told you that? <laughs> speaking it's a little of, bit of both. <laughs> speaking of someone who got a B minus in his statistics class, um, I have nothing but admiration for the science of it. I have that up next, so don't, don't freak me out yet. Good luck. Uh, you can have my notes. They're probably useless to you. Um, okay, so um, you had to have known this question was coming. Um, we are living in a administration with a President Trump, uh, which a year ago sounded like a ridiculous statement. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of Americans don't necessarily trust polling anymore um, because of, you know, what happened. Um, and you've argued that, you know, the, the reason is that we really trusted uh, a two straight or a two candidate race instead of a four candidate race. Uh, but if you look at certain uh, if you look at certain states, that's not necessarily always the case. You know, look at uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Hillary was up on a four state uh, race, you know, by a significant margin. So what happened? And then a larger question, what happened in well, 2016? Well, you know, there's a lot of polling out there. Right. And some of it's good. Some of it's not. Some of it's not that good. But I would argue that if, that overall, from the big picture of polling, uh, the the big, especially the big national picture, and, and and some of the states are different. But if you look at the big national picture, this polling, this this, and by the way, that's very different from what we have internally, right? Uh, because internally, and this is we're getting nitty gritty, but internally we're using a voter file where most public polling out there for news organizations they're not using mm -hmm. a voter file and what I and so I can look at a voter file and I understand sort of voting had voting habits and voting patterns which is which is a little, little different but but that said look if you look at broadly uh, most of the major national polls they actually had it spot on the narrative I think was wrong mm -hmm. um, but they had it spot on but there's also this you are not safe as an you're not safe until you get 50 plus one <laughs> you're not mm -hmm. because 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 it can change right and the and the horse race number is a snapshot at that time you remember the, going into the election there was a lot of conversation about college educated whites right mm -hmm. like college educated whites were holding back from Trump and they were a group that has been you know breaking Republican but their but their support for Trump was soft right so so he looked weaker than than what a typical Republican certainly weaker than Mitt Romney looked right uh, but in the end what happened college educated whites he won college educated whites she did not win college educated whites again those college educated whites in the end they moved back to the to to the Republican Party they in fact they did what speaker Ryan at said you know not perfect. He's not perfect, but he's someone that we can work with. He's someone we can support. And in those voters, in fact, move back. Uh, which again, you're not unless you get fifty plus one. You're not safe because the electorate is in fact fluid. When I tell, when I say, the to me, the horse race number is problematic because it's a number that's going to be changed. It's going to continually change. We shouldn't act like the horse race number is not going to change. And at the end of a campaign, for better or worse, Hillary was the incumbent in this race, right? Mm -hmm. And the end of a race, typically, the late breakers break against the incumbent. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of this race, you saw the late breakers break against her. And certainly from a lot of um, post-election polling that I've seen, um, she really did lose the end of this, the, 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 last, the last couple of weeks of this race. She really did lose the last couple of weeks in this race in a way that she was winning 
the race prior to that. Now, they argue that the Comey stuff was a big influence on it. I don't know exactly what the variable was, but when you look at the data and how voters, and even young voters, um, in the last two, three weeks broke in this race, uh, they broke harder, they broke harder against her. So overall, uh, I think people put too much emphasis on the horse race number as as predictive as if it won't move because you know what it is likely to move you make up a great point about those late breakers so i'm just wondering internally is there a way to identify how you know what groups will be late breakers and what people you really need to make sure you're hammering home your your closing arguments to in the closing weeks that's a good point and i don't think there's any silver bullet but i think that goes back to both the art and the science of it uh you know voters who are softly and there's ways of measuring sort of strength of support so, and, and again, getting nitty gritty here. So, totally fine. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that I would look at are who are those voters who are both, who are disproportionately undecided, but also who are those voters who are soft in their support for either candidate, right? And have a, or an open is one of the questions we ask are, you know, how open are you to changing? Yeah, uh, you don't support this candidate now, but how open? And so we and we sort of a four or three point measure of how open they are for moving their support. You know, I, I would look at questions like that and see are in fact who are who are the can who are the voters who are still most fluid, and I would spend a lot of time uh, potentially looking at you know how I'm communicating with them, where I'm communicating with them at, because I know that they in fact might might move or might break. Particularly, again, if you're not at a majority, anything could happen. <laughs> anything could happen when you're not at a majority. Um, so a big, uh, a big problem that uh, you know a lot of people have identified with our democracy today is gerrymandering. Uh, you know, it's a big problem for America, <laughs> and a lot of you know to say the least. <laughs> yeah, um, and a lot of people uh, chalk gerrymandering up to you know divisions among racial lines. Um, so could you talk about that and, you know, what's the connection between race and gerrymandering and, you know, how do we go about solving uh, the problem of gerrymandering? I, I'm glad you had that question. It's a very important question. This should not be about partisanship. Look, the, your House of Representatives right now is not a representative body because gerrymandering has gotten so extreme. And, and people like me and data are part of the problem because you know what? We can draw districts down not to the county or or, or 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 block or you know precinct level. We can draw precinct we can draw districts down to the to the house level, right? To ensure that less competition. So we're basically making districts that are safe for incumbents. And and lo and behold, less and less incumbents are actually are losing, right? That's good for incumbents, but not good for democracy. Mm. If we believe in free markets, and look, we got people who say, "Oh, let the free markets." The, the House of Representatives is 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 not a free market body. It is it is a fixed game, right? They have fixed the game to get a certain outcome. Now, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you should be appalled by this, right? And that's why you have right now so much of the you know if you want to. If you want to beat an incumbent, a lot of the action is in the primaries, right? So you have to cater to both uh, base elements of, of, of the parties because if you're going to lose, <laughs> you're going to lose in a primary. Which So you're driving 
uh, on both sides, but I would particularly argue, particularly on the Republican side right now, you're seeing uh, you're, you're seeing you know a, a drive further and further to the right uh, because of these gerrymandered districts, because these districts uh, are, are are drawn in a way to lessen uh, the marketplace, lessen competition. It would be a really good idea if we had uh, a body that took politics out of drawing district lines. Uh, and look, if you have a good idea, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you shouldn't be afraid to put that idea out there in the free market and let it compete, right? So don't draw districts that where you know what the outcome is going to be. Take politics and partisanship out of drawing these district lines. And I think we will have a democracy that's more representative and works better for the common person uh, and less for the ideological extremists. You know why most Americans hate members? You know, you know, Congress has historically low approval numbers, but yet they still keep getting reelected. It's because of gerrymandering. Uh, it is absolutely killing our democracy, and it shouldn't be a partisan issue. George, so just pivoting a little bit, um, so your book argues that we don't, in fact, live in a post-racial society like uh, many liberals and <laughs> Shock, progressives. Surprise, right? Surprise. A, a lot of people would would like to think we're there, but it, 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 it seems like it seems like we're not quite there. And uh, the election of President Trump seems to reflect that backlash. And I know one of the most impactful moments of the uh, election night last year was Van Jones at two or three in the morning saying, you know, the election of President Trump was a white lash. And I think a lot of people are are hearing that uh, narrative. Uh, in looking towards 2020, a lot of uh, African-American politicians uh, are being named as frontrunners in the 2020 uh, Democratic nomination race. So uh, figures like Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. Uh, so our question is, what sort of challenges would an African-American or a any sort of um, racial minority face in trying to win in 2020? Well, let, let me go back and put put the, the Trump. I want to put some context around, sure, the, around, around the Trump thing. Right. Again, he's at 46 percent. Right. I argue this wasn't so much about what Trump did as it was what Democrats failed to do. He is either on Mitt Romney's mark in a lot of these states or, or, or one or two points off of it, right? She is off of Obama's mark five, six points, right? right? You know, look at where she was off. Again, and, and some people, so to me, this wasn't about what Trump did. It was about what we fit what Democrats failed to do, right? I think Democrats have to, in fact, hold tighter the Obama coalition, and that and what central what was central to that Obama coalition were people who look like you, <laughs> damn millennials, yeah. right? Um, you know, a large swath of the of of the new voters that we brought to the process were, in fact, younger voters um, who were who who've been less. Uh, strongly and uh, identifying with either major party, uh, and when you look at where she's she was off, with, you know, in state after state, so much of it looks like where she was off in with with younger voters protesting. I mean, take a state like Wisconsin, and I think you know Joy Reid that showed this. I think on, on her show where you know it's directly in line with the third party vote. With those voters who who broke their protested vote, who were once upon a time Obama voters, but in fact cast a protest vote. 
I think that's a challenge for Democrats moving forward because, again, he has less than a plurality. He has less of a, he he doesn't have a plurality support. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't grow the Republican the Republican Party, right? He has less of a vote than, than Mitt Romney does. And take a state like like Florida again. He won Florida with forty nine percent, where Mitt Romney lost Florida with forty nine percent. Go to Michigan. Did he did he overperform Mitt Romney in in Michigan and Pennsylvania? He did a couple he did a couple points better, but she did you know she was off of Obama's mark's huge numbers. Did he, did he do better among blue collar white voters? Yeah, but he, but he also did worse among college educated white voters than Mitt yeah. Romney, right? So in the so in the aggregate, it's almost a mix. Although we we are really focused on what he did with blue collar white voters. Uh, the truth of the matter is, uh, when you look at how competitive she was with younger college-educated white voters, I would think we need to pay more attention there. Uh, so to me, it's really about what candidate can be aspirational. I think Democrats have gotten too transactional and not aspirational enough, right? Uh, I think the candidate who can, can, can speak truth to power for for a younger, anxious, protesting uh, group of Americans who are poor, aren't just you know black and brown, but black, brown, and white and yellow as well, can can cobble together back that growing uh, coalit that growing diverse segment of the the electorate. I, I like that candidate's um, I like that candidate's chances. However, at the same time, don't you know people say this you know well Cornell's really saying don't pay attention to blue collar whites and I, that's not what I'm saying at all you absolutely absolutely should pay attention to blue collar whites because I would make the argument look I, and Nancy Pelosi would make the argument that every time she she goes down and takes on a fight in the ho- on the floor of the house she's fighting for the economic interests of of the, of of blue co- of blue collar whites a lot harder than what, what what Ryan is I think she she would make that argument and from a policy perspective. I think I could, I think I could see and understand that, when from a, from a purely policy perspective, I can make the argument that she is as well, but, but, but we have to again. This is, goes back to my point in my about my book is, we have to stop ceding the racial conversation to the Republican Party, and when Donald Trump says, you know, which he said many times that, you know, we're going to take back this country. He's having a racial conversation, and Democrats' answer to that racial conversation can't be, "I'm gonna give you a raise the minimum wage." It's it's a disconnect, right? We have to have a conversation about, you know what? We're if America's gonna be, America's gonna win the future. We have to come together, and it can't be, "I'm losing because that group is winning." Uh, particularly now, because demographically. We aren't getting wider. We're getting browner. So the future belongs to us if we can better get along and not be as racially adverse and and hostile to each other right now. We have to stop this this ideal of losing your country, right? We have to we we have to take on that conversation. That's a really interesting point you bring up because, uh, at least from what we've heard, a lot of times people talk about, okay, Trump's economic message resonated, right? But Democrats were more interested in talking identity or social politics. Uh, but you said, you know, Democrats answered racial comments on the right with like minimum wage. Are you saying they're just? But talking what was racial? But what was what was Trump's? And look, it's not my just not not my, just my research, but there's a whole body of research out there. I mean, some professors from Northwest. When you look at, yet yeah, was economic 
anxiety a variable in in this election uh, for Trump for Trump yes but it but it was not as close uh, as the probability uh, connected with 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 race and sexism wasn't even close sure right so let's stop pretending and, and by the way Hillary Clinton won voters most concerned about econ- about the economy nationally and in, in every battleground state sure. right so economics is a part of it but identity is also a bigger part of it right uh, so you know and again I would argue to you what was Donald Trump's big economic message right right uh, you know I would argue that there wasn't a great deal of, of of spot on messages in this campaign at all it was a lot of it was about personality and attacks um, and and Obama's economic message was was really an aspirational and value piece right we talked about how hard work should pay off right if you work hard and play by the rules you should be able to get ahead. Is that ec- economic? Yeah, but that's also value-based. And I think to to a certain extent, Democrats have, will be more successful when they can put aspirational, value-based conversations first and foremost, and not simply economic messages. And but but I'm in a minority on this. There's a whole host of Democrats who keep arguing, oh, it's all about economics. It's all about economics. We just fine-tune economic message here will be so much better off right. right and every losing election we hear the same the same the same argument uh, about if we only just fine-tune this economic message we'd be a lot better off again it, it, the data shows that she won the voters who on most concerned about the, the the economy nationally and in all the battleground states Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's the question I was pushing at because that's the narrative we hear is just, you know, the Democrats forgot to talk about the economy and it's always the economy. So it's it's interesting to hear that data that, that stands in the face of that and says there's a path forward for Democrats. Yeah. Well, it's a tough path. I don't know if there's a path forward. <laughs> yeah, well, you're the expert on that one. You're, look, you're looking for the paths for us. No, no, no one's asked me. <laughs> that's a cynical view. <laughs> yeah. let's, move, let's move forward into our uh, more lighthearted Yeah. Uh, so round. just a couple of closing questions. Uh, we do what's called a lightning round here. Um, you know, I'm you gonna know. pass out. It's so damn hot in here. It is hot in here. <laughs> it is quite hot. There's probably no one in the. We can open the door, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Um, it's because of these tough questions you guys are throwing around. Throwing you heat. are in the hot seat. You're throwing the heat around. <laughs> I didn't know I was gonna be here with Chuck Todd and Chris <laughs> Chris Matthews here. <laughs> um, so our first question: You have uh, you've been a fellow at the Harvard IOP, and now you've you know you've been involved in geopolitics. So which one's better? <laughs> we gotta know the answer. Remember, you're talking to Georgetown students, uh, most likely. Listen, to be a part of, and look, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or whatever, look, to be a part of something as big as a as a campaign as for presidential level, like for us nerds, it's like our Super Bowl, <laughs> right? Uh, being a part, being a part of a presidential campaign is like being in a team. And the playoffs, right? And if you make it out of the primary, you know you're going to just, you're going to Super Bowl, and it's you versus the other team, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is what we work so hard and so fun and so thrilled about, right? So, you know, I, you know, being a part of a winning presidential campaign for for us nerds is like winning the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything compares to winning the, <laughs> to, to winning to winning the Super Bowl. Um, so, you know. Politics and campaigns. Uh, look, I'm a campaign hack. I, I love 
talking to people. I love trying to solve problems. And again, for me, polling is a problem solving tool. So I try to solve problems and try to understand the marketplace and position the brand better in the marketplace. I, I get a big thrill from that. And but also, you know, and I go back to this I go back to this 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 moment in the in the in the two thousand and seven, two thousand eight primaries where where we, we in the Obama campaign we had just won South Carolina and we had to win South Carolina. We needed to win South Carolina big. And South Carolina a lot of people a lot of people talk about how Iowa wasn't so important. South Carolina was really important, but that's a whole nother hour of conversation. And I got, <laughs> but anyway, so we won South Carolina, we won South Carolina big, and I was standing off to the side of the stage. Uh, I think I just hugged Axelrod and whatever, and so I was just hanging off to the side of the stage, and we were waiting for uh, then Senator Obama and Michelle Obama to come out on the stage, and it was, you know, we were in South Carolina, and understand we were this this gym. And it was like literally like around a corner or a couple blocks from where at that time the Confederate flag was still flying high and proud. Um, and there was a group of kids up in the rafters, not, you know, uh, egged on by any of us old folks or any campaign people. But they started chanting, race doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. And I was so struck and humbled by the power of that. And of course, they again... These are kids in South Carolina with the history of South Carolina and the Confederate flags around the corner. They do get that race matters, but they were shouting, trying to shout into existence what they wanted. Right? Politics gives you to be gives you the ability to be a part of that in a way that nothing else does. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. I'd say that answer pulled pretty well. It's <laughs> not Harvard and Georgetown. So, lightning around question number two. Uh, we just want to know since you just finished this book. What's the best solution, real quick, to writer's block? In your mind. Scotch. Scotch. <laughs> I respect that. You are speaking to universities. So <laughs> I mean, we do not. not I, mean, I mean, coffee. We <laughs> cannot endorse that answer there are, there to are. your paper writing problems. Oh. Would not recommend. At least that tells you you're 21. <laughs> uh, if you wanted to rig a poll, you know, to say whatever answer uh, you wanted best, uh, what would be the best way to do it? The best be little the statistical way? tool. You know, I, I don't even think of that way. Because, <laughs> no, I seriously. I, I hope you wouldn't think about it that way, but maybe us. I yeah. don't think about it that way because you you can't rig a poll because if you look at a poll, I mean, there's ways to, to, to ask questions that in a way that you know you're going to get the answer. But that's not good polling. And if you look at that poll, you know, you know it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, right? Uh, I do polling both that for, for clients internally, but also do polling for organizations that get out into the public. Right, and it's going to take public scrutiny. So you have an ability to look at my 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 polls, and it and it stands up to rigor. Uh, so I don't even I don't even look I don't even look at it that way. Uh, you know, I, I I never even, I've never even thought about it. That <laughs> I respect that. That's yeah. great. I'm sorry, I didn't get a better answer. <laughs> no, question, but I don't. I never even think about it. I, I think, good, that. I good think we can all rest a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not being too screwed. Uh, and one final question, just because you are talking to university students, we ask this to every guest. Uh, if you could go back to college, knowing that you know someday I want to be a, a big pollster, what advice would you give your freshman self? Well, I'm not that big of a pollster, but uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, your, your body of work would uh, uh, differ there. What would I give? Well, you know what? I didn't necessarily know I was going to be a pollster when I was a freshman. I know I want to get involved in politics. I know that was social science. Uh, I, the biggest advice I'd give to myself as a freshman was uh, learn to write well. Uh, the ability to 
to convey your thoughts and ideas in in writing to 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 a broader audience you just don't know how important it is and you just don't know how many kids i run into out of college who cannot write <laughs> right uh and who who cannot convey uh their ideas uh in writing uh very well uh so i would say you know cornell pay more attention in in literature class and pay more attention <laughs> in english class uh because and it's and by the way i'm i'm still growing as a writer i still don't th- i don't think i'm a very good writer but i'm still growing as a as as a writer so be hungry and be passionate about the pursuit of expressing yourself that's great advice. And, and Cornell says he's not a great writer, but I have his book right here in front of me, and I can't wait to dig in. <laughs> it's called The Black Man in the White House, Barack Obama and the Triggering of America's Racial Aversion Crisis. So if anyone's interested in picking up a copy, definitely, uh, check, it out. definitely check that out. <laughs> so thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. Thanks so much. so much for joining us on our i'm really running out of counts on five episode. six seven eight twelve well the thing is now it's complicated because we've launched in case you haven't heard a new venture called fly on the world i will take full credit for that title it was me um because i thought it was clever (laughs) or tommy vitor but we're not going to go there um this this mini series uh, is basically about international affairs because like we always say we cover domestic politics here that's sort of our specialty uh but the third uh the third leg of our our tricycle our third wheel rather <laughs> third stand of our tripod wow uh yeah justin mccarty our managing director uh is in the sfs and loves uh climate change so we thought uh i don't we... think he loves climate change <laughs> well, <laughs> I think to be fair, he hates climate change. Justin, wait, way on to this. Do you love climate change? I, I would not consider myself a lover of climate change. That's totally fair. Anyway, he's super into the concept of fighting climate change. There we go. Um, you can just say tree hugger. Tree hugger. He's a tree hugger. And uh, we, uh, our folks over at the uh, the Caravel, our good friends, wanted to do a collaborative project on climate change. They actually were able to get us uh, for next week the ambassador to the United States from Barbados, which is awesome. But that episode will be out on Wednesday. Look for that. I know all of you are flying home, or most of you are flying home for Easter. You have no excuse. Flying. Uh, Flying uh, or going home. Uh, You have no excuse not to download and listen to this podcast. It's going to be amazing. He was so transparent. He gives you the dirty details. You guys will love it. Yeah, definitely check it out, guys. Uh, Definitely check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. At uh, Fly on the Wall Pod. Hit us everywhere. Um, You know, uh, we're going to be having a really cool episode next week as well. Uh, Definitely check that out. Uh, And always interact with us on uh, Twitter. We have a lot of staff behind us who would, like, love to tweet you back. Yeah, Um, if you send us a picture of yourself listening to the pod, we'll make a cool graphic out of it. So that's another another, uh, plus to engaging with Fly on the Wall. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Definitely tune in next week. Thank you so much. Cool, thank you. Like, will we ever see him like on campus? I, he's like part of the season. So I mean, that's fair. But JT three, where where was he? I saw JT three on campus. Did you? Time. I never yeah. once he saw JT three. Really? Never once saw JT three. Anyone else in that camp? Patrick Ewing, if you're listening, bias Chipotle. <laughs> Patrick Ewing, alternatively, come on the podcast. Like, <laughs> oh my god, that'd be so fun. We would love to talk to you. <laughs>